again in this uh, strange new configuration, chair configuration that, uh, that we're trying out in this last month together. So uh, I think what we're going to try to do is uh, try to come up with as many configurations as possible. Uh, as you guys know, as Pastor Sam just mentioned, we are beginning the Lenten season, and which is a time of the Christian calendar that helps us to prepare for the glory of Easter. And one of the impacts of observing the Christian calendar is precisely this, is that it helps to bring our preoccupation with what's happening in our lives and, and our timetables, our calendars, and puts it into God's timetable and God's calendar. It's meant to snap us back into the greater reality, the greater time, the greater scale of history, right? My daughter does this thing where she will sometimes hyper-focus on things, and we literally have to say, hey, Lucy, and we have to snap our fingers and say, snap out of it. How many of you guys are like that? Just curious. Anybody, any of you guys like that a little bit? You you can really hyper-focus? Just nobody else, really? Okay, so uh, my wife, so clearly that's where she gets it from. Um, well, I know that because of what's happening at our church, all the stuff that's um, uh, going on in our church, the merger, uh, the talk, and the, the gathering, we, we can get caught up. And, and as Pastor Sam has been mentioning, hey, we got four weeks together. You know, he's been doing the countdown, right? He's like, three, two, one. He's like, this is the last time doing this. This is the last time doing this. This is the last time doing this. And we can sometimes get really hyper-focused on that. And I know that's not Pastor Sam's intention, and, and there's nothing wrong with uh, doing that. But sometimes we can kind of use that and think, wow, oh, it's our time together. And, and Lent, I think, in one sense, it, the reason why this season is here, God's providing us this season, is to snap us out of this. And to say there's something bigger at work here. There's Easter. There's Jesus. There is Christ and the resurrection that we get to look forward to. And that's what actually worship is supposed to do, right? That's what all worship is supposed to do, to, to snap us out of, of our preoccupation, of our hyper-focus on our own details. And this tells us there's something bigger going on in the world, in God's plan, and that we can trust that, right? So now traditionally, Lent, during Lent, people give up things. How many of you guys have given up things for Lent? Anybody here? <laughs> there's nothing wrong if you did so don't feel like oh I gotta uh, no um, you don't have to you know when, that's not part of our necessarily our thing but we might encourage you to uh, but sometimes people get confused about why you give up things and, and you give but you give up on things during Lent I think in one part to redirect your attention redirect your focus it's a time to reflect on our deep, deep need for the Savior and for God to come and rescue us. So that means that one of the things that we focus on is our sin, which means to say our great, great need for God. Our, our sinfulness of our great, great need for a Savior. But in my observation... Sin is one of the most misunderstood things, misunderstood topics among people in the church. We have this tendency to think that we know what sin is, and we can recognize what sin is when it, comes, when it encounters us, and, and the choice of sin or not sin is given to us. 
we think we would know this, and we think we would know when we're committing sin and when we're not committing sin. We have a tendency to think about sin like this, the sins that we encounter in our lives. It's like, um, I actually have to ask this question. How many of you guys know the Flintstones? How many of you guys have, like, oh, I'm too young for the Flintstones? Or, okay. <laughs> okay, most of you guys know at least the Flintstones. Um, <clears throat> you guys remember when uh, the Flintstones, this is a common th- thing that they would do in a lot of different cartoons and, and uh, TV shows as well. Um, there would be a situation when Fred is tempted by something. You guys remember this? And then there would be a, a, a evil Fred. Uh, in a little red suit, and then the angel Fred on the other uh, on his other shoulder, and he's like listening to the argument back and forth. Uh, we have a tendency, I think, to think that sin, when we encounter sin, is maybe not we, that literal situation, but we think we would know, and that there it, it is really about mainly about having the courage to make the right choice and and and, and to make the choice to not sin. And, and, and yeah, there are some times, there are certain situations when it is like that. I remember certain situations in college, very specifically, when it was like that. But if you think that's the main way in which you encounter sin in your life, you're missing the vast majority of the ways, the main ways in which sin encounters us. Um, and what happens is, if you don't recognize that sin has this um, ensnaring effect, when you don't recognize the, the, all the ways in which our lives are entangled in sin, then we have a tendency to not really think that we really need this confession. That we really need to do this. We have a tendency to think maybe, we, you know, okay, I get in general we need to do the repentance thing. But I really haven't made any simple decisions this week. I haven't listened to that red, you know, devil suit guy on the left shoulder too much. But sin has such a greater impact. We make sin word choices all the time. And the real effect of sin is that you don't even know you're doing this. That's why when you talk to really mature Christians, they always say something like, the older I get, the more sinful I realize I am. Meaning, it's not because they're sinning more. It's because spiritual maturity opens our eyes to see the great entanglement of the sin in our lives. So the reality of the sin is not so much like Fred Flintstone and his encounters with choices, but rather, um, I started watching this documentary on uh, Netflix called The Summit. Really, like, no hands up today. It's like, I got, like, three questions and, like, three, three hands up today so far. Really missing with the questions. Okay, The Summit. Um, check it out. It's a documentary about this thing that happened um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, with these bunch of climbers that were climbing K2. Now, uh, K2 is the second highest peak in the world, right after Mount Everest, right? It's on the Himalayas, uh, but it's considered by far harder to summit, by far harder to climb. In fact, for every three climbers that make it to the summit and back, come back alive, one dies. That's how dangerous K2 is. It, it is just scary, just watching 
the, the pictures of it and, and these people doing this. There was this thing that happened in um, 2008, and this, this documentary shows how in a matter of just two days, 11 people died on the mountain because of these, and you can see them, they're, they're making these bad decisions and piling them on top of other bad decisions. And 11 people die in these, you know, very uh, riveting ways. Because I, I stayed up last night to watch the end of it because I was like, oh, this is, this is so exciting. I was like, <gasps> you know, uh, he died, you know, that kind of a thing. It's a documentary, so I could have, like, read up on the whole thing, but I was like, really, it was really suspenseful. Um, but why are they making, what's going on? Why are they making all these bad decisions? Well, what happens is that above 26,000 feet, it's called the death zone. It's so high up in the air. The air is so thin. There is so little oxygen that your brain literally is starving of oxygen. And your cells are, are, are dying in the dying process. If you stay there long enough, you die. If, if the longest that anybody survived is actually one, this, one of the guys that went up there. He survived for 60 hours, and that's the record right now for having survived above the death zone for that long. 60 hours, that's it. Not even three days. He lost all his toes doing it. But, you know, it's, it's that sort of a thing. What happens is when, when you're this, uh, lacking this much oxygen, when you're up in that level, you start making bad decisions. You just can't help it. You can't, the, the part of your brain that, that you need to make right decisions, smart decisions, wise decisions, wise decisions, these are very, very intelligent, planning, meticulously planning people. They make bad decisions because it's in the air. It's just in the air. In the death zone. And this is how sin works. We don't even know we're making bad decisions upon bad decisions. It's just in the air in one sense. We're living in the death zone. And that's part of the consequence of the fall. Sometimes. What happens is when we talk about sin and sinfulness in our lives. uh, You almost kind of get this almost a feigned humility that, pri- that people do in the church. Oh, I am such a sinner. And we can talk about our sin in general ways, and we know that we're supposed to say, I am a sinner in the church. If you grew up in the church enough, if you stayed in the church enough, you know, I am such a sinner. You, you say this, and you know, oh, of course, I need to confess. And you say these things in general, but in reality, but deep in your heart, you don't really believe this. Because you don't really believe you are that bad. A little bad, but not really that bad. How can I say this? What makes you say this, Pastor Jen? Because people who say this, people who say it like this, often, you know what happens if you really think that you you, you really need a Savior? You really think you need to repent? You know what happens? you realize immediately, I have to change. You desire change, and you're, you're thirsting for change. You recognize, I have to change. But most of us, right, that thirst for change, that urgency for change, especially when we confess our sins, where is that? So we need clarity about sin and how it impacts our lives. 
which leads us to our text in Genesis 2 and 3, which explains how we were created for good, but let sin so dominate us. Um, so, let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 15 through 17 and three, 1 through 7. And now, there's a lot of confusion about Adam and Eve's sin and how that is relevant for us. As in, people will ask very, very good questions, like, why do I get blamed for something that they did? You know, just because Young makes a bad decision about something, you know, if he drives really poorly in the highway, I shouldn't be the one that gets a ticket for it, right? As long as I'm driving nowhere near him, you know, I'm not, you know, texting back and forth with him, which is, this is like something that we did. So he said, um, you know, I shouldn't be the one to get a ticket for something that he does wrong, right? And, and we kind of, in that way, we think, well, what does Adam and Eve's sin have to do with me? And this is an important question. And um, for, the, for our purposes, what I want to just say is, uh, what you need to know is that their actions create a sort of a template, a, a sort of a, a pattern You could even say they they create a groove in which we cannot get out of. They create a, um, if you want to be philosophical, you say they they create this ontological pattern. And and what the Bible is saying is that, look, how they mess up their lives, this is how we're messing up our lives. And I think that's enough for us to, to understand the connection. Now, how they mess up their lives is how we mess up our lives. How is it that they mess up their lives? The great gift of creation, the preeminent gift of creation. I've said this in every single wedding message that I've given over the last five to ten years. The preeminent gift of creation is the gift of relationship. Does that sound a little bit familiar now? Vaguely familiar. First with God. And then second, with each other. And this makes sense because relationship, this, this perfect relationship, is at the heart of God's divinity. That's why we worship a Trinitarian God. And what happens in the fall, what happens when Adam and Eve disobey, is that this relationship becomes broken. We lose our oneness with God. We lose our oneness with each other, and we actually even lose our oneness with ourselves. Everything becomes fractured. The relationship becomes broken. And what does Adam and Eve, after, do, um, after the fall, what do they do? They hide. And they hide from God, first of all, and they, secondly, they also hide from each other. That's brokenness, folks. That's brokenness at work. That's a brokenness of relationship. They lose their oneness, and the Bible is saying the way they did it is the way we do it now. What Adam and Eve did is recapitulated in our lives constantly. This is repeated in us daily. We are stuck in a loop. And this is how we're going to live until the grace of God intervenes in our lives and liberates us. Now, the grace of God can interrupt the cycle because this is not how we were originally created to be. So how then did Adam and Eve fall? What are the movements of sin that has impact 
on their lives that, that we can observe that has an impact on a lot in our lives. How does sin do its thing? The story points, this story points to three ways, and I want to talk about those three ways, and hopefully they will give us insight in terms of how sin is in the air in our lives. First, sin works by poisoning our atmosphere. And second, sin works by poisoning our trust. Third, sin works by poisoning our understanding of what is good, of a blessing, of a gift. So let me talk about those things one thing at a time. First, sin poisons our atmosphere. Uh, look at verse 1 with me. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent, who is the stand-in for, the, for Satan. It's either Satan or the messenger of Satan. It's the enemy of God, voicing, giving words to, to, to this. And this is what he says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And um, the word that gets translated really is important. And actually, in certain translations, for whatever reason, they, they skip that. But all, the, um, all my readings say that's a very, very important word because the Hebrew word for that is, 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 is meant for something certain. It's to say something is doubtless. So... But when the serpent says it, it says, did God really say? He's using it sarcastically to plant doubt. Using the word for certainty and using that to create doubt. To create a little bit of mockery. A lot of mockery. Sarcasm. It's just like when some of, some of us, when somebody says something, and our response nowadays is to say, Really? We don't really mean really. We mean, yeah, really? Do you really think that? Could you possibly really think that? Because that seems ridiculous that you might actually really be thinking that. Or when we say, are you sure? When somebody asks me we're doing something or um, we're we're talking about something and, and, and I say, oh, why don't you do this? And somebody were to ask me, are you sure? At that point, the thing that I thought I was sure about, now I'm not so sure about, right? It creates doubt. It poisons the air when we start being sarcastic about that. God really said that? That's what the serpent is saying. What is the serpent doing? Look, look at what the serpent doesn't do. He doesn't make a direct challenge to what God said. Instead, he uses sarcasm to create an atmosphere to poison the air. To create an atmosphere of mockery, of doubt, of questioning, of placing yourself now. When you do this, you place yourself above God. Really, God? Who's in charge now? A poisoned atmosphere where you're made to feel like an idiot if you really believe what God said. Did God really say that? Oh, uh, no, maybe, yes, no. What the serpent does is not provide any information. He doesn't say anything. Any, provide any information with that question. It's just a question. It's sarcasm. It's irony. It's being cynical. But he provides the perfect atmosphere 
for sin. And this is the way it starts. The road to separation from God doesn't begin with an argument, folks. It starts with a, with a smirk, with an atmosphere, with, with a little bit of arrogance tied in. Listen, people don't outrightly belittle faith. People don't outrightly say, wow, you, you believe in God? That's absolutely wrong. You, they don't, they don't, when you say, I believe in God, people don't outrightly say, well, that's just, that just can't make possible sense. People will say something like instead, like, wow, great. By which they mean not great. People don't say, let me give you an example. Let me give you an, let me give you an argument for why the resurrection didn't happen. No, people say, wow, you have more than a third grade education and you really believe in the education, uh, really believe in the resurrection? Okay, good for you. Right? That's not an argument. None of these things are an argument. That's just derision. And it's the poisoning of the air. Remember that. The road to separation from God doesn't begin with an argument. It begins with an attitude. Now, the ironic thing is that Christians don't realize that we're doing exactly this sometimes. How? There is sometimes an air of sophistication for us that comes over Christians, especially and this is, this is uh, I think this is one of the sins that I have to really struggle with, that I really, really find myself struggling with. That I cannot look upon my, um, uh, the fact that I've been Christian over the years and the fact that I've, I've grown over the years to an extent to, to kind of use that to mock other people's faith, to mock other ways in which people are expressing their faith. There's sometimes an air of sophistication that looks down on anything that seems to them to be, um, uh, to, to us, to be too uptight or too old school sometimes, right? And I think a congregation like ours, we have a tendency to say something like, when you hear it from somebody else, we have a tendency to say something like, wow, yeah, but, you know, really? We're not that legalistic, Right? And I understand and appreciate the dangers of legalism. But tell me one spiritual discipline that you can do, that the scriptures teaches us that we're supposed to do, that when done consistently does not border on legalism, prayer, scripture reading, fasting, anything like that. When you do it consistently, you have to do it legalistically in one sense. As long as you don't think this is the means by which you're receiving your grace, you have to be strict about it. You know, um, like when, when um, two pastors get together and we talk about fasting, this is like a, two pastors walk into a bar. No, uh, two pastors will get, get talk about, you know, this is how pastors talk. We, we were like, oh, really? Oh, you do it that, like that? Well, I'm not that legalistic, you know? It's like, oh, I drink juice. I was like, oh, wow, you're so legalistic. You only drink water? I was like, oh, I don't, I don't do it like that. I drink juice. It's like, oh, well, okay, well, but you're not drinking. That's not juice. That's, that's a smoothie. You know, it's like, oh, you're so legalistic. I don't do that. You know, it's like, no, we, we, this is like, a, this is like a main put down. This is like pastors. This is how we put each other down. This is like, it's actually true, isn't it? It's like the main way in which we pastors put each other down. You really, you still believe that? You still think that there's something? Listen, this is, you really think that there's something to keeping 
trying to trying to keep the Sabbath holy? You really think that there is something to 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 keeping sex, sexual purity within the confines of marriage? Really? You still think you have to really go to church, that institutionalized thing, regularly? Really? The serpent is saying, hmm, wow, did God really say that good? I mean, I mean a God, a, a reasonable God, how could he possibly say, lay off the tree? That, that doesn't make sense. God really say that? And we're still repeating that question to justify our actions. Justify, somebody calling? So justify our infidelity. Justify our breaking of words, of our commitments, of our vows. Justify our unwillingness to obey God rather than our selfish impulses by saying, really? Did God really say that? Because that doesn't seem, I don't don't want, nah. So that's the first thing. Sin poisons our atmosphere, not with an argument, but with an attitude that says, I can question everything. I am the righteous judge above which that I can make sure that God makes sense to me. And that is going to be my basis for my faith. Sin poisons our atmosphere with sarcasm. Sin poisons our atmosphere with mockery. Sin poisons our atmosphere with an attitude before it does anything else, folks. That's the first movement of sin. The second, of, the second movement of sin is that sin poisons our trust. Sin poisons our trust. The first thing the serpent does is, uh, is to enchant us with a sinful attitude for the heart, but now he gives us an outright lie. Look at verse 5 with me, verse 5. Chapter 3. Says, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God knows when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is what the servant is saying. <clears throat> you know, hey, um, Adam and Eve, folks, I've been watching you guys, you know, and I feel sorry for you guys, so I feel like I have to speak up. And I just had to come and tell you this. See, God does not want the best for you. Really, he doesn't. God wants to keep you down. God doesn't have your best interest in his heart. God knows that if you go out on your own, you'll be so much better than if you stayed with him. God knows that if you go out on your own instead of listening to his will, you'll be the one who will ascend even above him. But he wants to keep you down. That's the truth. That's what the serpent is saying, right? And we know, and I, I have to say this, we know that this is an outright lie because as soon as they do what the serpent suggests, they do not become more than they were, they become less than they were, right? Listen, the serpent in his lie does not... Go after the existence of God. 
the big threat for Adam and Eve is not atheism, whether they choose to, whether or not they believe or not believe in the existence of God, as we tend to think. The big faith divide, folks, is not whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God. The big faith divide is do you really trust God? The serpent does not try to get Adam and Eve to disbelieve God. He goes after the goodness of God. He goes after God's love. You can't really trust that God loves you, that God really is gracious. You can't really trust the grace and the love and God's goodwill for you. That's the essential nature of the serpent's serpent's lie. God is not to be trusted. And when they believe this, it poisoned them. It broke. Right? Anybody uh, study psychology in college? Okay. You guys remember Eric Erickson? Child development guy? I had five hands up. Hooray. And... Um, you don't even have to be a uh, psychology major, but Eric Erickson was uh, actually a major uh, important figure in child development uh, psychology. And this is what he said. The main thing a little child needs is not to be dropped. I love that because it kind of captures everything. The main thing a little child needs is not to be dropped. What is he saying? The main thing is a little child needs is to be able to trust his parents, to trust her parents. Otherwise, uh, he or she will have trust issues for the rest of their life. Now, some of you guys, some of your parents are feeling a little bad right now because, or some of you guys are wondering if you were dropped as a kid because you got trust issues. But that's exactly what the serpent decides he's going to try to do, destroy the basis for your trust in God. God can't be trusted. See, God doesn't want you the best for you. That's why he's keeping that tree from you. And that's us. Because if you can't trust God, if you can't trust God, you can believe that he exists. You can even believe that he has power. But if you can't trust God, then what is your faith worth? That's what the serpent does. He messes with your trust in God. So we wind up saying, oh, we really have to trust ourselves. Do you know how you know you have fallen for the serpent's lie? At least one sign in terms of your faith faith life, is that you replace relationship with God with a checklist of things that you have done right. You start replacing relationship with God, love for God, with a checklist of things that you have done right so that God must approve of you. I remember um, when I was a kid, I remember I would think, God, I went to church now, four weeks in a row. 
you owe me this football game. You owe me this test. You owe me this thing. He's like, God, now I got something to say because I went for four weeks in a row. Now, some of us, uh, we think about spiritual things or, or going to church, not as a way of drawing closer to God, folks, sometimes, but rather as getting a check mark so we can make sure that God gives us what we need. But that's not a relationship. That's not faith. That's a contractual obligation. Going to church becomes, I went to church, rather than, I worshiped the Lord. Your measure of going to church becomes, I sat down and listened, rather than, I worshiped the Lord. Do you really trust God? Or do you just believe in his existence? What would that mean for you? What would that mean for you this week? With all the stuff that's going on in your lives. I got stuff that's going on in my life, so I know you must have stuff that's going on in your life that's creating lots of anxieties and lots of stresses. What would that mean in your life if you really trusted that God's will for you is to be trusted? That God really desires the best for you. That you don't have to work out every detail to make sure that your life is happy. But rather simply trust that I know no matter what I try to do with my life, I can never make my life happier, better, more meaningful, whatever, than what God can do when I just simply obey and accept his grace and his love for me. Folks, what would that look like this week? What would that look like as you think about the coming week if you did that? Would it make a difference? Do you see where sin has crept in? Can you see the effect of sin in your life now? Will you believe the serpent or will you trust God? That's the second movement of sin. Now lastly, I said sin poisons. Sin works by poisoning what we think is good. Sin works by poisoning our gifts, our blessings. So in order to do this, let's look at the tree. Um, Any of you guys ever wonder uh, what this tree was? What, what was the fruit? Anybody ever do that? I used to do that. Oh, come on. It was just play with me. Thank you, Esther's. Esther's. Okay. So, um, as a kid, my mom would come in from the grocery store every once in a while, and she would say, they say, this is the fruit that Adam and Eve ate. 
You know, you, you, you had your mom doing that. It's like pomegranate. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. It's awful. You know, uh, am I supposed to eat the skin? No. <laughs> um, every time I hear uh, Pastor Sam uh, give like some sort of a sermon illustration with a peach, like, you guys know what I'm talking about. If you guys have ever lived through this with me, he talks about peach, summer peach, and he goes. Like that, he does that thing. You guys know what I'm talking about. Every time I, I see him do that, I think, um, peach must have been the forbidden fruit. It was a peach tree. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it is, and it really doesn't matter, right? But, but have you ever thought that it was strange that of all the things that God can say about behavior and activity— as he leaves Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that he says, eat everything. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. If I'm leaving my kids to go to the bathroom, I say, I have like five more directions than that, just to go to the bathroom in peace. I say, okay, I'm going upstairs to the bathroom. Don't bother me. But during that time, you guys don't fight. Don't eat that candy. Um, you cannot play games that you cannot start surfing the internet. It's like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, um, you, uh, you, you know, there's like a whole, don't, don't uh, get into an argument. There's like a whole bunch of things that I say, even for like five minutes. But God leaves the greatest treasure trove of anything just like the earth has ever seen. The most beautiful place. Uh, wonderful animals. I'd be like, don't kick the lion, you know? Don't play games with the elephant, you know? Uh, don't step on that. You know, I would sit, be saying all of these things. But instead of that, God says, don't eat from that tree. That tree. And God doesn't say, hey, don't kill each other. God doesn't say, don't hit each other. Don't get into a fight with each other. God doesn't say, share things with each other. God doesn't say, I'm going to make more couples, so don't commit adultery with them. He doesn't say any of these things. Why not? Because that will be saying the essence of sin, actually, I think, is to be doing bad things. And I don't think it is. I think we have a tendency to think, Sin is essentially about not doing bad things. Instead, he chooses the tree to talk about, and that becomes the basis for our fault. Why? Because I think the tree, tree is a good thing. Tree, good thing or bad thing? Good thing. How many of you guys like trees? Thank you. Wow, that was like an easy one. How many of you guys believe in God? Okay, so. <laughs> Tree's a good thing. It gives life, provides sustenance, provides fruit. There's nothing inherently wicked about a tree, right? But they took this good thing and turned it into something they can use to become their own gods, Right? And this is subtle, but this really is, I think, the essence of sin. Sin is not just doing something bad, but using a good thing and turning it 
into a way to become your own Savior and Lord. Using a good thing and turning that as your basis for becoming your own Savior and your God. With most of the troubles and devastations of your life, it's not primarily because you're doing bad things, because you have, but because you have looked at good things in your life, the trees in your life, the good things that, that can, that's supposed to provide nourishment in your life, and you have turned that into your God. To be for you what only God can be for you. To be your security, to be your significance, to be your comfort. Why do some of us struggle so much with our careers? Why, why is this such a, such a massive issue when, when we lose a job? Is there anything wrong with work? No, it's a good thing. But the essence of sin is that you've turned this thing into your security and your significance instead of God. Why do young people get so devastated if you get a bad grade? Well, you don't get into a, a school of your choice. Is there anything wrong with education? No. But you've turned it into your identity, your sense of significance. Why do some of us struggle so much with letting go of certain bad habits that we turn to in times of crisis for comfort? Shopping, food, addictions, whatever, stuff. Because you have made something else, your pathway to security and significance, and not God. And this is why it's such a brilliant and a devastating strategy by the serpent. Is there anything wrong, folks, with loving your spouse? No. <laughs> But if you look at your spouse and say, if you love me, and if you think I am great, then I know I will be somebody. If, you, if that's what you turn to your spouse for, folks, that's not romantic. It sounds romantic, but it's not. It's idolatry. You're looking for your salvation through your spouse. You're not looking for God for that. You've just burdened your marriage with something that it was never meant to carry. To carry and you will wonder why you are not satisfied. Why your spouse is always disappointing. To make you feel significant enough. Now, do I need to say how we do this with our kids? For the parents. What happens when you place your significance in your kids? Your security and your comfort in your kids. Let's not burden our kids with that. In a congregation like ours, and, and I'm, I'm looking out here, um, uh, not just on this side, but this side too. I don't see like a bunch of drug dealers. I don't see a bunch of... Um, Ex-cons, maybe they're, I don't know. <laughs> I don't see a whole bunch of like corporate embezzlers. I don't see people that are on the FBI wanted list. 
I don't see a whole bunch of adulterers either. As, uh, I'm pretty sure I have... Uh, uh, <laughs> Most of us haven't been to some weird bars in Vegas. All of us haven't been to some weird bars in Vegas. I'm sure that's not our main issue. That's what I'm saying. Right? This is our struggle for a congregation like ours. It's not that we do bad things, folks. It's that we turn good things into the source of our security and significance and comfort in a way that only God is supposed to be for us. We have trees in our lives. And just because you're not doing those bad things does not mean that you are not falling down before the tree and thinking that that is the source of your satisfaction rather than the one who has given it to us. Right? The essence of sin is really, as Pastor Sam said, pride. It's to think that you can be your own savior or the savior of the people that you love. Calling the shots about how you're going to be your own savior. We have our trees. So does it seem, looking at this passage like this, does it seem like maybe we might have a need, a great need for Lent, a great need to confess? Not just a little need, but a great, great need. What can we do about it? We'll cover that next week. Really, Lent is a little bit like that. It's meant to make us feel bad for a week. It really, because there's a lot of things we feel bad about. Not, not like down on ourselves, depressed, but to recognize our great, great need, our great darkness. We're supposed to recognize that. We're to be sober and solemnly supposed to do that. For now, I just want to say this part, which is, if you look at the passage... In verse 7, 8, and 9, what happens immediately after what we read is that God goes out looking for them to save them. God, this God, this omnipotent God that knows everything that has happened, he still goes out looking for them to save them. He knows fully well what it's going to take, what's going to happen for him to step into the garden. He knows the cost. He knows it. But he doesn't just say, forget about these guys. I'm just going to start another garden altogether. He goes in. So. He shows his determination to save us. To find us. And he knows what's going to cost. And the cost is Jesus. And that's what we're thinking about during Lent. Father in heaven, we remember during this time of our great, great need. And we see our darkness even more clearly as we see your light. As we see the hope, we recognize our hopelessness. Help us to love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to give you the rightful place. 
May you be with us this week, reminding us of these lessons. May you be with us in the coming weeks as we journey forward toward the cross and the resurrection. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.